1: Thank you, John. It's uh, great to be here. Let me just say as a participant here how encouraged uh, I've been in um, listening to the um, discussions yesterday, and uh, what a blessing it's been to have everyone involved. Um, most of you won't uh, appreciate this, but I think Jay will, since he's from, he's from Texas, I just want you to know I, I've given up um, be- this year being at the uh, Rattlesnake Roundup in Sweetwater um, earlier. <laughs> Uh, today, which takes place today once a year, um, just so I could be here. So um, <laughs> quite a sacrifice on um, my part. I, I just found out that Jay and I are, are both from Amarillo. As John says, a great part of Texas. <laughs> um, every part of Texas is is great. But um, <laughs> I had no idea. It's amazing. In the providence of the Lord, talking to Jay, he and, he and my wife went to the same church, um, didn't, didn't know each other, same church, and graduated from the same high school. So uh, the Lord has brought us uh, together again. Now, um, what am I doing here? One of the things uh, I've been asked to do is uh, to, to help us think uh, together about the discipline of apologetics. Most of you will know that apologetics is a defense, generally, generally. And when we think of it uh, here at uh, Westminster and in other contexts like this, we're talking about a defense of the Christian faith. Not a generic defense, but a specific defense of the Christian faith. Now, a, a couple of things I, I want to say before I get into the, to the discussion here. Um, so some of you will know um, that the uh, methodology that we teach around here is, is sometimes called presuppositionalism. Uh, students will know what what that's about, and, and I think oftentimes um, that terminology, we've, we've talked a lot this, uh, in this conference about terms and uh, how they can be ambiguous and, and sometimes miscommunicate. I think that's the case with a term like presuppositionalism, so I don't use it very much unless I have to. Part of the reason for that um, is because when, when the term was first sort of stuck on to, to this approach back in the 40s, um, it was kind of accepted, and, and there weren't as many people at that point, talking uh, explicitly about presuppositions. Um, nowadays, it, it's everywhere. And, and so um, I, I hear uh, on numerous occasions uh, things like this, oh, you're a presuppositionalist, so, so um, all of us have presuppositions. That's not what it means. That, that's so obvious, you don't, you don't build a method around that. Um, so, so that's part of the problem. The word has become uh, very uh, ambiguous um, it, it's, it's even become a kind of relativistic term so that um, um, some people say, well, we all have presuppositions and you know, the best we can do is just work according to your own presuppositions. So um, I, I call the methodology a covenantal approach. I'll talk a little bit about that in, in just a minute. Um, but, but I want you to know that, that um, what, what I decided to do this morning <coughs> was not so much talk about uh, that particular matter. I, I wanted to, to make it more uh, hopefully helpful to, to a general audience. And, and so I, I decided what I wanted to do is go to scripture and to present uh, something to you that I hope uh, we can all agree on. Now now it just happens to be one of those areas that, that is central <coughs> for the kind of approach that, that we teach around here. But but my concern, part of my concern is I think it ought to be central to, to all of us uh, who hold uh, the Bible to be the Word of God. If what we're going to be talking about here is, is true, if my analysis here is true, then I think the question remains for, for the rest of us, okay, how do we apply this uh, in terms uh, of apologetics? So, so I don't want to get into a, a kind of uh, discussion right now. We can do this in the questions if you want. Discussion about a presuppositionalism versus Evidentialism. I, I was telling somebody the, uh, last night that I was asked uh, a number of years ago to speak on apologetics, and and um, they they asked me for a particular reason so that I'd talk about our approach. And I and they said, "What's the title of your, your talk?" And I and, and I entitled it, "Why I'm an evidentialist." Now the reason I did that, the reason I did that is because, as I've said before, the the, the true way to understand uh, evidences is, is, I think, in in a biblical context that is a covenantal or presuppositional approach. So to pit those two against uh, each other, again, is, is, uh, is, I think, superficial and artificial. So what I want to do um, this morning is uh, approach our discussion of worldview, really to, to try to get behind what we're talking about when we think about worldviews. Let me see if I can get at it this way. Um, A number of years ago, a few decades ago now, there was a conference uh, called in in Europe on the nature of worldviews, and one of the um, goals of the conference was to define what a worldview is. Uh, So the conference uh, goes on, and and at the end of it, it was uh, was deemed to be a failure. And in the words of uh, W.T. Jones, uh, this is the reason. He says, The differences of opinion about worldview reflect differences in our own (laughs) worldviews. So you see, there's a conference call to try to, to, try to ferret out a consensus on worldview, and it, it couldn't be done. Now, there were so many differences. What, what does that tell us? It tells us that there's something deeper going on uh, than just worldview. Another example from a bit of a different context, now more uh, recent, from uh, Rich Mao. Speaking here, he's talking really about the kind of postmodern consensus, and he says, uh, such a stark pluralism, as you find in postmodernism, he says, can no longer be described as a a a conflict of worldviews, for worldviews can conflict only if they compete as accounts of the same world. In the extreme pluralism of postmodernity, as he's talking about it here, there is no single world. There are as many worlds as there are worldviews. It is possible that we are now on the threshold, he says, of the end of the age of worldviews. All right, that's, that's a view that, uh, that, that's out there, um, and, and it's a view that, that says that, that worldviews uh, stem really from uh, the cultural milieu that's, that's present or the philosophical position uh, that, that, is, that is out there. Is that, is that really the case? Um, we, we could ask, is this the way worldviews are developed? Well, what I want to do is uh, begin to talk about, as I said, uh, a foundation for any and every worldview, that is, there's something underneath a world. What is it that makes worldviews possible? We could ask it that way. Uh, And I think what we have uh, in in, uh, the book of Romans, it's been alluded to already, Dr. Poitras uh, did some uh, work on this yesterday and it's been mentioned a a few times, but what I would like to do this morning is uh, take us through Romans chapter one in a bit more detail so that we can see what, what, uh, what I've uh, decided to call the womb of the worldview, it, th- those uh, sort of dark recesses where these things uh, are nurtured and where they begin to be developed. The only way we can have that, have access to that, of course, is because God uh, the Holy Spirit uh, inspired the Apostle Paul to give us information, true information, about just exactly what is taking place in our own psyche, in our souls, if you will, with respect to the development of how we think and how we act now in a fallen world. So what I'd like to do uh, for the few minutes that I have, and and again, I hope you won't see this as kind of my pitch for presuppositionalism. Uh, It is that. But I don't want you to see it that way because I think what we're doing here is what, we're sa- is what I'm trying to say is that this, whatever view you hold apologetically ought to come from the truth of Scripture. And, and, and if, we, if we're going to debate apologetics, let's start uh, with what Scripture teaches. All right, so let's look together at Romans chapter 1, and I want us to read it, really uh, verses 18 to 32 and then I'm just going to want to point out some, some basic points about this text. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to follow the discussion last night. I was, I was happy to see that we were, we were into the biblical text. I think that's important. I don't think that's all we need to do here. And I'm, I'm glad to see the other uh, sides of uh, uh, signs presented as well. I think that's important. has to be done. Uh, but fundamentally, where, where I live anyway, we've got to start here. Now what do we have in, in uh, Romans chapter 1? You, you know enough about the book of Romans to, to know that it's, it's a highly influential book in the history of the church. Uh, certainly uh, the conversion of Augustine at least uh, stems from uh, his, his reading of a passage in the book of Romans when he was walking in, in the garden and, and heard a child say, take and read, take and read. The influence of the book of Romans is substantial and significant. I think one of the reasons for that is because Paul had not been to this church yet. He says to these Christians, he longs to see them, to come to them. But until then, what he wants to do is is lay out the plan of God in terms of the gospel. And so so the focus of the the book of Romans, as you know, is is found really in verse 16 where where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The rest of the book explains that verse. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. In other words, what what Paul wants his readers to understand now, we could say more generally, what the Lord wants us to see from this book in giving the church this book is just what the good news is of Jesus Christ. Just what that gospel is. And so as Paul begins, he's he's thinking now about the gospel, and he says then in verse 17, For in it, the good news in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You know that verse. You're aware of what Paul is saying there. So Paul's saying, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. But then what does he do? He thinks to himself hypothetically here, in in order to understand this good news, we need to understand the bad news. So so he moves then from this notion of righteousness revealed, which he's going to return to in earnest, as you know, uh, particularly in chapter 3 and following. He moves from that idea the righteousness revealed now to wrath revealed. And what Paul gives us, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is he really gives us the psychology of, of unbelief. He tells us where all of us are before God when we're outside of Christ. That's the first thing Paul wants us to understand. That's the first thing the Lord wants us to see in terms of this good news of the gospel. The bad news first and then the good news. So just what is the psychology of unbelief? What does unbelief look like? Paul begins to discuss that then in verse eighteen, so let's let's read together, uh, verse verses eighteen. If you don't have it, um, I've got it here. I'm using the ESV, uh, not because I had anything to do with the translation, but I know guys that did. <laughs> so that's what I'm using. All right, uh, Romans one eighteen, and following. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature All right, now, a few things to say here, and uh, we couldn't go into the, to the detail that it deserves. Uh, I, I encourage you to do that um, on your own, in your own uh, personal study, but just, just some things to highlight here, if we could. Uh, first of all, I think it's important uh, to see here that what uh, Paul gives us is a universal indictment, as uh, Dr. Poitras mentioned uh, yesterday. Um, Paul's uh, concern here is for Jew and Gentile alike, um, He's articulating a situation in which all of us are in Adam uh, as our uh, covenant uh, head. Uh, So he he makes that point in uh, Romans uh, 3, 9. uh, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. All of us under sin as it is written. And then you have uh, this uh, selection that Paul gives us of uh, passages From the Old Testament, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It couldn't be clearer, could it? Uh, This is where we all are in Adam. That's Paul's point. And he begins here now uh, in uh, verse 18 uh, to discuss the topic uh, Paul wants to address. Is the wrath of God revealed from heaven? All right, remember, righteousness revealed, Paul's saying, I'll get to that. But first, wrath revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, it's, it's, I think it's helpful to note here that um, the way in which Paul is uh, thinking about this revelation is that it is dynamic and not static. That is, it's not something that's just planted uh, onto creation and there it is. Uh, This is something that uh, God does by virtue of His uh, continuing presence in the world. Uh, This again goes back to what Dr. Poitras was saying yesterday, um, that that our environment, our context, uh, fundamentally is a personal one, not an impersonal one. Law is not impersonal. Our environment is not impersonal. Our environment is first of all, and in the first place, God Himself. And and His revelation then is a dynamic revelation that takes place really with the passing of the minutes and the hours and the days and the seasons. God is revealing Himself uh, always and continually in the world. He has condescended to do that. So, uh, just as the righteousness of God is being revealed, uh, so in in the way that Paul describes it there, for those of you who are interested in in, uh, what it looks like in the Greek, the the, the word that Paul uses, the wrath of God is being revealed. Now, in in verse 18, uh, Paul uh, introduces here, there's the introduction of uh, two concepts uh, that that Paul is going to now uh, uh, explain to his readers I think, you know, as Peter says, some things in Paul are difficult to understand. Uh, We all say amen to that. And I I don't want to pretend that we can get exactly inside of Paul's mind. But in the way that that he's uh, inspired to write here, I think you can begin to see that even as he writes this this, uh, phrase, suppress the truth, that he's thinking to himself, I'm going to need to explain a bit more uh, what I mean by uh, suppression and uh, by truth. Uh, the katakonton, the holding down or suppression, and the truth itself. And Paul uh, takes those uh, two words now in reverse order in, in this passage. So he says, uh, what we do in Adam, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And so the question comes, Paul, what do you mean uh, the truth? Do you mean, do you mean two plus two equals four? Do you mean we're suppressing that? No, not, not that. N- not that exactly. He'll get a little more specific now in uh, verse 19. Uh, he says in uh, verse 19, for what can be known about God, that's, that's the first thing he, he wants uh, his readers to understand. What I mean by truth, Paul is saying, those things that can be known about God. All right, uh, Paul, that's, that's a little more helpful. We have a context now. But what things? What things are you uh, talking about here? Well, uh, specifically, uh, verse 20, uh, His invisible uh, attributes, namely, these two categories, uh, His eternal power and uh, divine nature. Eternal power and divine nature. Now again, we don't don't have the time, this isn't the place to go into a, a, a good bit of detail here, um, but, but let me just say that uh, what, what Paul is, is, is describing here, I think Charles Hodd says rightly in his commentary on Romans, all the divine perfections. In other words, the, the, the categories he uses, eternal power of God, well, first of all, the invisibles, invisible things of him, namely eternal power, divine nature, theotes, that those, those are meant to describe all the divine perfections. And, and again, doc, Dr. Poitras has done a magnificent job of showing us yesterday in part what this means uh, of the revelation of God as it takes place in history. God revealing himself uh, through the things that are made. So I don't think we want to um, categorize then that there's there's just this little bitty um, area of, of information that we have with respect to God but really it's It's God's divine character. That's that's part of what is meant in that word that's used, a It's God's godness, if if I could put it that way, that's being revealed. So what is the truth? The truth is what can be known about God, uh, His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature. The invisibles... Uh, we're we're being told here in Romans, the invisibles have become visible by way of God's revelation. And God's revelation is through the things that are made. Now now that's a a very exhaustive category, isn't it? That includes everything. Uh, All of creation, then, is revelation. Revelation of what? Revelation of God's character. See, now that, that's an important and I, I don't want to quibble over details here, but sometimes we use the notion general revelation in the context of whatever somebody happens to find out about the world. It looks like the world is like, well, that's general revelation. Biblically, I think we have to see, first of all, general revelation is God revealing Himself through the things that are made. Revealing his character through those things. Now now there's a lot that can be said here again that that I won't get into in detail here. um, But this has huge epistemological implications. That is, implications with respect to how we know anything at all. Uh, And and fundamentally, if I can just uh, say it here without developing it, if you'll allow me just... to to assert it in this way. The only way we know anything, not just God, anything at all is because God has given it to us. And see that that has massive apologetic implications. If that's true then uh, knowledge, true knowledge, is only had because of God's activity and on the other side couldn't be justified apart from knowing that activity and understanding it and acknowledging it. doesn't mean you can't have some knowledge. It just means you can't justify the fact that you do have it because God is the giver of it. He's revealing Himself through the things that are made, which means the things that are made can be known because the activity of the thing is God's revelational activity. You see how the environment is exhaustively personal? There's God revealing himself through these things that are made. Now now Paul says, and and, and these are Paul's words, you may want to quibble with the way I'm I'm going to uh, um, understand this, but you you can't quibble with the words. Paul says, God's uh, revelation, God's perfections, are plain uh, to us, are clearly perceived, being understood. In other words, uh, uh, what he's saying here, we get it. Uh, We get it. Why? Because, as he says uh, in verse uh, 19, what can be known about God is plain to them. Why? Why is it plain to them? Here's the rub. It's not plain to us Because of our right thinking. It's not plain to us because we've gone through the proper inferential process of reasoning and therefore reached the right conclusion. It's plain to us because God has shown it to us. You see who the actor is here? It's not you or me. God is revealing. God is making Himself plain, plainly known to all of His human creatures. All of them. Now, um, uh, part of what Paul has in mind here, I'll talk about this in in just a minute, but just so you know, part of what Paul has in mind here is he's thinking about uh, specifically the image of God. What does it mean to be image of God since the fall? Since the fall, we remain image of God, but that image of God is now perverted, distorted. And that distortion has to do with the suppression that we're going to talk about in in a minute. But the image of God has to do with the fact, if you think of a mirror image, when you stand in front of a mirror, you look in the mirror, and you point to the mirror, and you say, there I am. Right? But that's not where you are because you're in front of the mirror, but that is the image of you there and unless you're there, there is no image. So so part of what the image of God is, is it is the presence of God with us, with our uh, responsibility and obligation then to image the God who is here. God is present then with all of his human creatures and that presence establishes by God's initiative, a relationship. Every human being is in a relationship with God in one of two ways, and there are only two. There aren't three, there aren't two and a half, there aren't five, there aren't as many as there are worldviews, there's two. And it's covenantally defined. You're either in a relationship with God in Adam and therefore under his wrath, or in a relationship with God in Christ by grace. No other option. Why? Because God is present, present there with every human being that He has made. And this is the case throughout history and into eternity, isn't it? I remember reading a, a, a sermon, I, I can't find it anymore, it was years ago, a sermon by Jonathan Edwards. He was talking about the reality of, of hell and he was complaining that uh, too often we, we, uh, we think of hell simply, this is not all wrong, that was his point, but simply as the absence of God. And, and Edwards was saying that can't be the case because what makes, part of what makes hell hellish is the very presence of God. Because you spend eternity in the presence of the one who gave you life and breath and all things and whom you rejected even as he gave you those good gifts. So scripture says the worm never dies. The conscience is never appeased, you see, because you're looking, as it were, into the face of the one who gave you everything even as you spent your life rejecting him. And Edward says, that is hellish, isn't it? But what's the point? The presence of God is there, but it's the presence of his wrath, not his grace. So how are God's perfections made plain and understood? Because God does it. That's just for those of you who are interested in the way the text reads. So you see the revelation of God's character through creation, again this is general or natural revelation. And there's meant to be an organic connection. There is an organic connection. Between natural and special revelation. That is to say, if, if you separate the one from the, the other, you're going to distort it, inevitably. Now, uh, what, what Paul says here then in, in Romans 1, what can be known about God, uh, what can be known about uh, God is plain to them because God has shown it to them, his invisible attributes, eternal power, so that they are without excuse. Uh, In other words, uh, Paul's uh, point here is is very uh, clear. It it really can't be uh, made any clearer that all people know God. Not all people know God savingly. That's not his point at all. And you know from the book of Romans, he'll get to that point. He's 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 going to get there. But the foundation of who we are as human beings made in the image of God is that we are God-knowers. Paul's not saying here, If I can be a a, a little um, controversial, Paul's not saying here that everybody knows that there might be somewhere, somehow, something bigger or better than we are. That's not his point. Not his point. He's not even talking about just simply propositional knowledge. I know that there is. It's covenantal knowledge. It's personal knowledge. It's knowledge in the presence of the one whom you know. It is knowledge that, as we're going to see, places obligations on us. It is knowledge of the personal God. It is true knowledge. Remember uh, Paul's point. What's happening? The truth is what we suppress and we can't suppress it unless we have it. And what is the truth that we have? The truth that we have is the knowledge of God. The knowledge of the true God, the true knowledge of the true God. Now, you see what Paul's saying? This knowledge has content. It's not abstract, it's not general, it's not opaque, it's not ambiguous. It's true knowledge of the true God by virtue of our being made in the image of God. That's Paul's point, it's the language that he uses what Calvin called the sensus divinitatis. The sense of divinity, or the semen religionis, the seed of religion, just is the knowledge of God. Notice, not a capacity for knowing God. Of course, you have that. But that capacity has content. You have that knowledge. We all do. Remember, it's universal here. All of us have that knowledge. Later on in, in Reformed thinking, it was, it was uh, um, spelled out uh, this way by some. Some said this kind of knowledge is, is, uh, has a twofold sort of aspect to it a cognitio incita, or implanted knowledge. And there, um, the theologians wanted to make a distinction between uh, that which is innate and that which is implanted, because by this time, uh, innate knowledge was seen to be somewhat autonomous after a kind of Cartesian uh, understanding of what it means to be innate. And so the, the, um, the understanding here is that it's not, it's not innate in and it's implanted because that implies coming from the outside in, you see. Implanted knowledge, acquired knowledge, all right? If we open our eyes, as, as Calvin says, we necessarily behold Him. Uh, so s- suppose you don't open your eyes. Suppose you can't open your eyes. You still have the knowledge of God because you yourself are a creation of God's and He reveals Himself. In you, And he reveals himself outside of you. But both of these, acquisita and insita, are, are knowledge of God that God gives uh, to all of his human creatures. It's not something, Paul is not interested here. It's not something that some but not all might infer at some point. That's not Paul's. Paul's point is, this is universal because we're image of God. So it's not the case then that God reveals and then we have to um, somehow do something. We have to take that revelation. Uh, But instead, God's character is plain to us, clearly perceived and understood. That's Paul's point about the truth. He's explaining it that way. Um, He's he's putting flesh on on the bones of that one word, truth. So he says um, at the end of verse 20, um, so they are then what? without excuse. Uh, the Greek word there you see it, on apologetus, transliterated, on, you see that second word? Does that look familiar to you? In other words, without an apologetic, without a defense. There is no true defense for unbelief. How could there be? if If unbelief holds that maybe there isn't a God, or certainly there isn't a God, or we don't know if there's a God, when as a matter of fact there is God, the triune God, who's revealing himself, then that unbelief doesn't fit reality, does it? And what else can we mean by truth except something that fits reality? So how can there be a defense for something illusory for a world that doesn't exist? That's that's Paul's, Paul's point here. There's no defense, there's no excuse. You know, the, you know the story perhaps of Bertrand Russell spent much of his life uh, attempting to refute Christianity, a, a vain attempt, of course, um, but he, he worked on it and, and apparently he was asked at some point, Lord Russell, what if you're wrong? You die and you meet God, what are you going to say? He said, I will say to him, not enough evidence. Not enough evidence. Guess what? That's not what he said because the evidence is abundant. The the problem with Russell and the rest of us is not the evidence. That's not the problem. That's why I can give a talk why I'm an evidentialist. The evidence is abundant. Uh, You have it internally, you have it externally. Once you open your eyes, there it is. That's the truth. But there's a problem. This is the second thing that Paul takes up that he wants to Explain. Yes, there is truth, but katakanton, we hold that down. Uh, think, think of a, a, an illustration, think of a, a beach ball that you have at a swimming pool it's filled up with air. You're trying to keep that thing underwater. That's, that's the picture. See, it, it wants to pop up. It screams to pop up. But in, in our sinfulness, we hold that down. So, Uh, What does that look like? Uh, Verse 21, Paul says, For although they knew God, all right, he's concluding then what he's already said in the previous verses about the truth. Here it is, uh, folks, it's plain and simple. They knew God. We know God. Even though we know God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. What's going on? Suppression of the truth. What ought we to do with this knowledge of God? We ought to honor Him as God. Paul's going to go on to say, again, we won't have time to look at it, go on to say in Romans chapter 2, it ought to lead us to repentance. It ought to lead us to be thankful even for the rain, even for lots of rain. But instead, we won't honor Him as God or give thanks, but we become futile, empty in our thinking, and we darken our hearts, which is really the, the soulish side of us, if, you can, if I could put it that way. This is who we are, the heart of who we are. We become darkened then. Why? Because we refuse to see the light. We want to hide from the light. Claiming to be wise, Paul goes on to say, they became fools. Who do you think Paul has in mind there? Claiming to be wise. Who do you think it is who says they are lovers of wisdom? Who is it that loves Philo, wisdom, Sophia, Philosophy, philosophy. Now, I don't want to uh, stand up here and denigrate all of philosophy, but most of it. <clears throat> because as I, as I studied it, uh, I think it's fair to say, and again, this is a general statement, there are exceptions, but, but what, uh, philosophy is just well-articulated unbelief. <laughs> That's what it is. And it can be, it can be very uh, persuasive, uh, can't it? Because uh, it can be so articulate in the way that it expresses unbelief. Asking all the right questions. What is the nature of ultimate reality? Good question. And then, and then their answer, I can figure this out on my own. I got a couple degrees. I think I can do this. Or, um, how do we know something? Or what's the nature of knowledge? Uh, another excellent question. Philosophy's answer, I can work on this. I've got it within me to get the answer to that one. Or what's the nature of right and wrong? How how do we think about ethics? Great question. Philosophy's answer? I'll figure it out. I think I can do this. That's what philosophy does. I I, I read a a book fairly recently by a a philosopher at Notre Dame named Peter van Inwagen. It's a little introduction to metaphysics. Interesting introduction. He's he's wanting to, to promote metaphysics and what he says in the beginning is, is fascinating uh, because he, he warns the reader at the beginning he says um, he says I don't know why this is the case you can sense his frustration as he's writing he says I don't know why this is the case but I have to say as someone who's interested in metaphysics it is the case that after a four thousand years of dealing with this we still don't have a clue what we're talking about he d- I mean that's a paraphrase but he says there, there still is no body of knowledge in the area of metaphysics uh, to which we must defer in order to deal with the subject. After 4,000 years! So what do philosophers do? Ah, onward and upward, another 4,000 maybe we'll at least get some kind of terminological consensus. Right? When I was um, uh, speaking of being foolish, when I was on uh, my first study leave I decided I'd take a, a, a philosophy course. I'd been dealing with some material and analytic philosophy for a good, good bit and hadn't done much in continental philosophy, so I thought, well, Villanova's right down the street, sort of, and, um, you know, they have a great uh, philosophy department in continental philosophy, so I'll go over there and, uh, and take a course or two. Let me just recommend you never do that if you have that <laughs> in. I learned my lesson after the fact. But um, having said that, there was, a, there was a man teaching over there, a course on Hegel, who, who was in charge of all the new uh, translations, senior editor of all the new translations of Hegel that were coming out. And uh, so I wanted, to, I wanted to sit under him. He'd, he'd uh, taught in Germany for a while and was a world-renowned expert in Hegel. So I thought this would be fun. So I, I uh, got into the Hegel course. It was a, a doctor-level seminar, a few of us sitting around the table. And uh, all we did for the whole semester was, was work through the, uh, the phenomenology of spirit. If, if you have uh, insomnia, uh, <laughs> grab that book and start to read Cured, cured almost instantly. So we, we worked through this this massive tome of phenomenology of spirit, and um, it was you know it was interesting for me kind of on the outside coming into this, looking at these uh, uh, doctoral students because uh, many of them as, as as some of you may know they're they're kind of looking for something to hang their you know their their own intellectual hat on and they're taking this course from this world renowned expert thinking okay maybe maybe this is it maybe it's Hegelian idealism so we we go through it every every week we come with our our, um, you know, our digests really of the of the material that we've read, and we're discussing it, and and um, you know everybody's got their German here and their English here, and they're really into it. Um, it wasn't very fun uh, for me for that reason. But a- a- as we move through, as you know, Hegel's phenomenology is working through the dialectic of history as it proceeds along the thesis, antithesis, synthesis, moving along. And and at the end of the phenomenology, um, Hegel's uh, point is that we reach this point of the absolute, this concrete universal of the absolute, and and we're all you know through the whole semester everyone yeah but what about the absolute one and you know professor we'll get to that we're going to get to that so we keep moving along but it seems like this is the absolute no we're going to wait till the end we get to that the last week comes you can just feel uh, you know it's it, it, you just feel the tension in the in the room we're all going through it and we're waiting for uh, the expert the. The expert on Hegel. Uh, so we give our little, you know, our precis, what we read, this is what we think, this is it. And the question then, uh, what is the absolute? And he said, here it is. I don't know. <laughs> and I'm fairly certain Hegel didn't know. That's what he said. And, and you could see in the room. I mean, it was, uh, you know, off to the registration table. Let's, let's register for another class on Aquinas or something. We've got to find something to <laughs> hang our hat on. Now, Hegel, if Schaefer's right, and I think it's questionable, but at least I think he's partly right. If Schaeffer's right, Hegel is one of the most influential philosophers in, in, in Western thought. And if, if this professor's right, he didn't even know what he was talking about in the end. See, claiming to be wise they became fools. And what happened? There's a futile exchange. Again, Dr. Poitras uh, mentions this. They exchange uh, the glory. Notice how Paul describes this truth that we have now. It's, it's a phrase he uses to, to point us to that, very, to that very fact of the truth. The glory of the immortal God. We exchange that, what? Uh, for idols. Images. We exchange this glory, we don't want it, we hold it down, we will not have it. Why? Because then we're going to have to be accountable. So instead, we hold that down and we exchange that for idols. And I say there, uh, note the reversal of the created order and the way he describes those idols. It's almost a a downward spiral process, isn't it, in in the way that he's he's presenting it uh, there. For images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and reptiles. He has Genesis very much in mind as he's writing this passage. Genesis 1 to 3. You have the created order. You have the perversion of that by man disobeying God. So so what happens in this suppression is an exchange of the glory of the immortal God. That truth which is the glory of the immortal God for images. Now, uh, remember what Paul's subject was? Verse 18, wrath of God. He hadn't even gotten to that yet. Because he recognized we needed to know what he meant by suppression and by truth. Uh, Beginning in verse 24 and 26, 28, the same verb is used there. Paul begins to describe then the wrath of God. What is God's response to us when we suppress this truth? Therefore... Uh, God gave them up. God gives them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So the evidence of God's wrath, Paul is saying, uh, revealed from heaven, is that He gives to those who choose futility and darkness more and more futility and darkness. As somebody has said, uh, the judgment oftentimes for sin is more and deeper sin. That's the point that that Paul's uh, making here. And that comes by way of God lifting His common, gracious restraints on people and saying to them, If you want sin, I'll give it to you in spades. And that's a recognition of God's wrath. Now now Paul is not here in, in any way, uh, undermining uh, the fact that sin is sin. We're responsible for this. See, But this evokes activity on the part of God that Paul names wrath here, such that God gives us up, at times, to those desires that we continue to choose in the face of the obvious truth of His presence. So what happens? Verse 25. God gives us up to impurity because... He's just saying it again, but it's, it's, I think it's, it's instructive to see how He repeats His point. Because they exchange what? Now the truth about God for a lie, and then what do we do? This, this, is, uh, this is so important to see Uh, the way in which Paul describes our activity in the suppression, we exchange for a lie and do what? We worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Those two verbs are monumentally important. Why? Because Paul is saying here, I think at least in part, what uh, some of our... Um, Dutch folk have reminded us of on and on again, I think rightly, that life is fundamentally religious at root. That is, you will always worship something or someone. Uh, Calvin says in Book One of the Institutes, what, what sets us apart as people made in the image of God is that we, just as we must eat and drink, we must worship and serve something active religious verbs this is no casual exchange yeah I'll deal with the God thing later or not really very interested that may be what's happening on the surface but the Lord uh, tells us here what's happening below the surface there there is an attachment to whatever it is whatever those things are that we make as idols and you you know there can be many of them doesn't have to be just one and they can be idols that no one else sees. We know that because of the wickedness of the heart. But whatever those things are, those are things then that we begin to worship. You see that? We serve these things. They become our masters. They master us. This is why the world doesn't know how to deal with things uh, the, the kind of human behavior now that they just say are addictions. Well, why are they addictions? Because we have determined to serve something else. And God has said, You want it, you've got it. And as one person has said, then sin takes you for a ride that you never wanted to go on in the first place if you'd known where it was going. Because we worship and we serve. <laughs> some other God that we've made in our own image. That's Paul's point. It's a religious point. Any worldview that's out there, no matter how many, starts here. Starts with the suppression of the truth in unrighteousness and that fatal exchange of the truth of God that we want to hold down for a God that we make in our own image and that we attach ourselves to in order to avoid Him. But it's not because His revelation is opaque. It's right there. And we hate it. Uh, Dr. Poitras was mentioning the uh, uh, French existentialists. I remember when I was first uh, reading uh, Jean-Paul Sartre his big book, Being and Nothingness, he has just some tremendous insights, even though it is well-articulated unbelief. But he does have some great insights. And what, what, what does Sartre hate more than anything else? Because of his view of freedom, what he hates is the world and anything out there. Why? Because that, he calls it a structure of exigency. It imposes things on me that I don't like and he explained this you know in such uh, a vivid detail You remember in, in, in nausea when real content shakes this man's hand he says it's like a big fat white worm in my hand it's this thing despicable thing as he's thinking about the hand that he's shaking or, or in, his, in his play, No Exit, you remember, um, it's a horrible situation because there are three people in a room. And Sartre says, you know, if, be, if it were two, well, maybe we could get a relationship. But there are three, you know, three's a crowd. Uh, and and there's no, there are no mirrors in the room. And, and what's the problem in, in this place with no exit? The problem is that you can objectify me. You can make an object out of me. I can't make an object out of myself. So the problem is you. And how does he conclude hell is other people? You see, it's it's that reality outside that we hate and do not want. And and so what do we do in our suppression of the truth? Well, if we're consistent, which, thank the Lord, we're not because of His common grace. But if we're consistent, we move away from reality altogether, completely completely. Uh, or as, as, as Camus said, the only serious question left, if you're going to be consistent, is suicide. If this is as bad as we say it is, why in the world would we even stick around? But there are inconsistencies because it's God's world. And God is merciful even to those who are in Adam, even as He was merciful to us. One more point uh, before I stop. I think it's instructive to see <clears throat> at the end of the chapter, verse 32... That this knowledge of God includes knowing God's requirements. He says, though they know God's uh, decree, as it's uh, translated here, I'm not going to quibble with the translation because I know, guys. Um, that translated some of this. But it's the dikaioma. It's the righteous requirements there of God. They know God's decree that those who practice such things, here's what we know in knowing God. We know what God requires, and we know if we violate those requirements that that's a capital offense. We deserve death. Now that's substantive knowledge, isn't it? And Paul says we know that by way of natural revelation. God gets that through to us. What do we do with it, though? That those who practice such things deserve to die. What do we do? We not only do those things, but we form societies so that we'll all do them together. We establish clubs. We get groups of us together so that misery will love company. We we not only do those things, but give approval to those who practice them. Hooray for you. Now, now here's, here's the fundamental problem for everyone who's in Adam. It's not ignorance. It's ignorance of special revelation and that's why the two need to come together organically and Paul's going to make that point. The only way out of this, the only, way, the only remedy for wrath revealed is righteousness revealed in Jesus Christ. See, you don't get there generically. You get there specifically and redemptively, moving from being in Adam to being in Christ. And the problem is, you see, since it's not ignorance, what sin does to us is we are utterly self deceived that's our condition in Adam we know something and yet we have convinced ourselves to believe its opposite that's where we are now that helps us see doesn't it when we approach people in a defense of the Christian faith just as we were many of us in Adam, that we are approaching people who are self-deceived and whose testimony about their own condition and their own thinking is going to be fraught with that self-deception. And so as as Calvin always reminded us, the way to look at those situations, the way to look at, if I can put it this way, general revelation, is only through the spectacles of special revelation, through the spectacles of Scripture. Because only there are you able to break the self-deception. Deception, which brings about God's wrath, and then have the righteousness that comes only from what Christ has done. I couldn't uh, resist one quotation from our friend Dr. Van Til, who was our first apologetics professor. I think it's, uh, it's well put. The whole of created reality, including therefore the fields of research with which the various sciences deal, reveals the same God of which scripture speaks. The very essence of created reality is its revelational character. Scientists deal with that which has the imprint of God's face upon it. Created reality may be compared to a great estate. The owner has his name plainly and indelibly written at unavoidable places. How then would it be possible for some stranger to enter this estate, make researches in it, and then fairly say that in these researches he need not and cannot be confronted with the question of ownership? Thus, inescapably, does the scientist meet the pattern of Christian theism in each fact with which he deals. They've not done justice by the facts they see displayed before and within them if they say that a God exists or that God probably exists. And with that, I'll finish. We have just a few minutes for questions, so if you want to ask them, please come down.
2: Yes, uh, Dr. Oliphant, uh, you mentioned you were here last evening and were encouraged uh, because they got into the scriptures, and I was grieved. Uh, you mentioned this morning that, uh, you know, you've been to Sweetwater. I have a twin sister that lives in Sweetwater, Texas, and I've seen the Rattlestake Roundup. That's just incidental. But, uh, no, that's very important. You, you, referred, you referred to being not ashamed. And I'm concerned that, and I say this with sorrow in my heart, that in some measure, Westminster may be ashamed about the heritage of young earth perspectives. Uh, And there may even be evidence of some suppression. Uh, There was no representative of the historical, traditional position on the stage last evening. And so this morning at uh, four o'clock in the morning, I get up and I put together something that I called 95 Theses. Now, of course, I'm putting quotations around it and I've, it's two pages long, and you talked about specific defense. Would you be interested in receiving my specific defense of the Young Earth position, two pages? I made 27 copies, and you're welcome to have one. Thank you. Uh,
1: yeah, why don't you uh, see me after I'm through here, and okay. and anybody else that would like a copy, and, as long as I have it, thank you. Yeah, let me just, let me just say here uh, again, um, I think it's been said already, but uh, Westminster, uh, whomever, there's no shame in, in, in that position. That, that, you know, it's a, I think it's, it's such a strong way to put that. <clears throat> there's no shame in that position, but I think it's at, least, at least this much needs to be said. The argument uh, for that position, as, as well as any other, I think Dr. Collins was showing last night, that argument needs to take place uh, at, at the point of exegesis. And, and I'm, I'm happy to engage those arguments, and I think that the seminary is. And no one, let me say loudly and clearly, uh, hopefully recorded and on video, no one is denying the absolute authority of the Bible. And, and what it teaches, we must believe. Uh, there's no question about that. Let me say on the other side, uh, that there has not been uh, this kind of animus if I could use that word, against those who don't hold to that position until the relatively uh, recent uh, uh, time. And and I think, see, I think what what we have to consider, if I could put it this way, is it may be the case that we're letting cultural factors scare us into holding a certain position. We need not do that. We, We don't need to be afraid of anything out there, I didn't mention this in my talk, but um, whatever's going on right now, philosophically, in some cases even scientifically, it's going to change again. It is. So it doesn't need to threaten us because it's just another attempt to try to make sense of things. We don't need to be threatened by anything that's out there because we understand God has spoken and what he says uh, is true. So um, there, I don't think there's any attempt on, on anybody in, in Westminster, as I know Westminster and live and breathe here, um, to, uh, to, to submerge any of those positions that take seriously the Word of God. And I would hope that that would be uh, reciprocated.
0: Thank you. And what you said was well sta- said. Thank you. Um, I'm a little bit concerned that a takeaway that somebody might Take from what you just said, um, is basically to trash the whole philosophical enterprise and say it's not worthy of Christian study. Uh, I don't think that's what you're trying to say. Obviously, by your your quotations of Sartre, you know, No Exit, and things like that, you yourself have are are well read in existentialism. But it, you know, everything from the pre-Socratics to postmodernism, they're they're looking at at. God's creation, they're asking some of these wonderful questions. And I believe that that philosophy uh, has a lot to say to the Christian faith. And I know that my own Christian faith, my own uh, commitment to Christ, has been deepened by my study of philosophy everywhere from pre-Socratics to postmodernism. And I think we should be encouraging people. To study philosophy, not discourage them just because they don't have the ultimate answer. Uh, obviously, the ultimate answer is in Christ. Mm-hmm. The, the you know uh, the, the the questions the Buddha raised about human suffering uh, are real, real questions. <clears throat> well, he's missing the equation of Christ, the final answer to you know to to to
1: to, to suffering. Let uh, me let me just say a couple things about that. Um, I, I think. I, ha- I have to be careful here because I- I, uh, I I still read a lot of philosophy. I've studied a lot of philosophy. I'm not a philosopher, as philosophers will tell you, but I, I wrote. Uh, you know, <laughs> since um, since I-, I think one of the things that we're supposed to, not supposed to, but one of the things that's happened up here is we're plugging books. I don't really mean to do that, but I did write a book called Reasons for Faith, and, and part of what I'm trying to do in that book is to articulate the relationship that there ought to be between philosophy and theology. That has been fundamentally skewed. And when that's skewed, I'll, let me say it to you this way. I have seen more people go astray from the Christian faith because of well-articulated unbelief in philosophy than I have been encouraged. Now, I think you're right. So you're right in the sense that you can, you can glean benefits from philosophy. But, but my concern, as I've said before, is I wish these, these philosophers... Um, who, who deal extensively with whether or not God exists, whether or not there can be miracles, is there life after death, what's the nature of right and wrong, why don't they get a theology degree before they start doing that? Um, and they don't do that. What they do instead is say, I've got the equipment to manage this, and by the way, as one, as one Christian philosopher has said, uh, don't, you, don't you dare go to theologians if you want to understand the deep things of God, because analytic philosophy has the answer to that. Now that's an evangelical Christian theologian. And I want to say to him, shame on you. Um, so my concern is that, that if, you, if you are enamored with the, uh, uh, the life of the mind, which I think we, we do want to love the Lord with our mind, uh, be very, very careful in your study of philosophy that you don't wind up thinking that what we need to do is bring the Bible into uh, a philosophical paradigm uh, to make it sound uh, philosophical or intellectual because what philosophers won't do and what they must do if they're going to deal with those questions is begin with biblical revelation, not with the autonomy of reason. And philosophers won't do that because they say, out of bounds. And I say to them, then quit talking to me about God and His eternity and whether or not He exists and miracles and life after death. Or, I'm going to come into your paradigm and say, you've got to begin here because you've been at it for 4,000 years and you still can't tell me a word about metaphysics. See, that's an apologetical argument. So, <laughs> Sorry. Um, I, yeah, I don't mean to get that animated. So, here, here's, <laughs> here's my bottom line. If you are a Christian and you love philosophy, good for you. Don't you dare leave the Bible in your study of it. I have had people, I have told, I've asked some students, please don't do this, and now that's what they're doing. And it just kills me because these, these arguments are so persuasive at places and you can sound so foolish saying, wait a minute, what about this? Yeah, uh, we got a theology department that deals with that. Oh, okay, that's right, we do. Well, let's think about it then. See, it goes into that sort of thing, and it, and it scares me to death. So I, I, I want the warning out there, but I think your, your correction is, is, is good as well.